welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Let's get naked. Hello, welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Today I'm with Meredith Cherry and I'm very excited about this. This is a such a unique story. It's such a unique story. I mean, everyone has their own story, but you took your story and did something so dynamically different. It's incredibly impressive and I'm excited to jump in. So tell us about your website and who you are and what you're doing. Well, I am Meredith Cherry, as you said. Um, I am doing a 48 state horseback ride for domestic violence awareness. And so my ride, I titled the Centaur Ride. And so my website is uh, centaurride.org, C-E-N-T-A-U-R-I-D-E.org. And uh, that's where I put all the big information and also, of course, social media and stuff. Yeah, which is how I cyberstalked you. I just went on your website and then from there. But yep. you're going through 48 states and 10,000 miles. Uh, 48 states, and it'll probably be more like 12,000 miles, although I think I still have it as 10,000 on <laughs> yeah. the website. But at a certain point, does it really matter? <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, you want to yeah, claim every mile, will. but yeah. <laughs> and you're riding horseback on mm -hmm. your horse, Apollo. Mm -hmm. So for domestic violence awareness, um, so clearly we know that that's a passion of yours. We can go ahead and jump into your story right away. I want to know about your background though, your education background, because it ties in so much to this. I know that just because I read about you. And so I really want to get that background also. So take us back as far back as you want to go. I don't know if you were a kid that rode horses or you have connections, but jump in and start sharing the story. Sure. I was a kid that had my little ponies. I did not have horses. <laughs> I had a bicycle that I named after my favorite horse character in a book and rode around and pretended that my bicycle was a uh, horse. What, what and, character? Uh, Misty of Shinkatigue, who is one of the more popular of the children's books for yeah. horse kids. Uh, and, you know, a little cliche there. And, any unusual character <laughs> and so um i started riding horses when i was 16. my parents finally decided it wasn't a kid thing that i was going to grow out of it wasn't a phase i wasn't growing out of it and so i finally got to start taking riding lessons at the nearby stable uh so i was i grew up in the city so it was there were no horses around there wasn't really opportunity uh, without really seeking it out. So, um, so I rode for a couple of years in high school, just uh, weekend basic lessons. And then I went away to college to Colorado State where I studied equine science and I got my bachelor's in equine science, which is equine is horses. So I got my degree in horses. <laughs> I mean, I read that and I was like, of course you did. <laughs> but I didn't realize your background was more My Little Ponies. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, was make, I was making this judgment that you grew up on a ranch and it was always second nature. But that is a phenomenal. And it's great that your parents <laughs> finally recognized that it wasn't just a passing fancy. Right. And you got to take lessons. And what was that like the first time? Oh, the first lesson? Oh, I was just beside myself. I was just like, I'm finally getting to learn how to ride a horse. I'd gone on like, you know, nose to tail trail rides when we were camping or stuff like that. I went to Girl Scout horse camp for a week when I was 12, which was just phenomenal. So 
you know, I went into lessons being like, well, I rode a horse before, you know, <laughs> and, and then after two years of weekend lessons, you know, I could do basic horsemanship stuff, but I thought I, you know, I've been riding two years. I knew all about riding horses. And then I went off to college and met all of these people who had grown up in the saddle and were doing things I didn't even know you could do with horses. And I was like, oh well I'm gonna get this degree anyway that's okay <laughs> I mean good for you with the bravado you know <laughs> I I can imagine you showing up for your first lesson like look I've got my little ponies and I've been riding my bike so that's right. I could probably teach you but I, that right. is awesome <laughs> that's awesome that, but you didn't know what you didn't know so right. And you went, you still did it you did the equine you had a love and a passion for horses more in general though it seems like, like it was just something you really, really wanted to do. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, horses have always been my passion. I, there's not really a better word for it. Um, and, you know, even when I started out on this ride three years ago, I started riding and I spent three years before that preparing, but Apollo is my first horse. Yeah. Like, I took lessons, as I said, two years in high school. I took lessons through college. Uh, I got college credit for riding horses, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, then I didn't ride horses for 12 years. Oh, right. I wouldn't swear to that number. But anyway, it was, it was at least a decade since yeah. I'd been on a horse before I got Apollo. And so I was certainly rusty. It's kind of like riding a bicycle, but then again, you know, it's not really, as you could tell from my riding a bicycle, thinking it was a horse at 12 and then taking <laughs> lessons. Uh, it's, it was a, a little rough start with getting back into the saddle. And then to go from that, where I was basically um, somewhere between better than beginner, but maybe kind of intermediate rider, kind of, to launching off on this adventure where I'm in all sorts of situations that a lot of horse people very rightly would not put themselves in that situation, uh, riding all over the country. And so I've been doing that for years and certainly I still learn things even you know, every, maybe not every day anymore, but every week, every month, I'm still learning all sorts of stuff. How did you decide to go from zero to 60 on the, I mean, it's that my life. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay. She seems so quiet, but <laughs> really it's the quiet ones. You have to watch out. For. Right. I'm busy thinking. And then I just, uh, okay. All right. So you, you, you had always wanted a horse. You hit a point in time where you could own. How did you find Apollo and know that that was the right fit? And what did you do for the three years to prepare? Because this is, you're in 48 states for 12,000 miles riding a horse. You've been doing it for three years. This is not like a little thing. This is an enormous undertaking. So tell me about finding, you had to have been ecstatic. You could finally have a horse. Oh, yeah. So uh, in between college and finding Apollo, I was in an extremely abusive relationship, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 
when I left, all the only thing I was able to take with me of any value was my engagement ring. And I sold that and that was my horse money. And so that was, uh, that was my budget. However much I could sell that ring for, that was going to be my horse. And that's what I wanted to do with that. I mean, I had like legal fees up the wazoo, but I wasn't going to spend that on legal fees. I was going to finally get myself a horse, dang it. And so I did. And I uh, found Apollo on Craigslist, which is not the recommended way of finding a horse. But <laughs> I was going to kind of ask that, but okay, it worked <laughs> out. It worked out this time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, luckily, I did at least have a lot of background knowledge about horses to know what I was looking at and be like, well, you know, I'm realistically at this level of rider. I'm not up here. I'm not like really beginner. So I know what kind of horse I'm looking for, what I'm planning on doing. You need a certain kind of horse to uh, be able to go this many miles. I don't have a pack horse and I don't have a sport vehicle. So he has to carry me and all my bags. So he had to be big enough for all of that, for example. Um, so there was a lot of things I was looking for, and I found him, and and uh, it's been a good, uh, good decision. So I, I love that's that you, how I found him. I love that you took your engagement ring, and that was your like, what a good trade. That was yeah, a great absolutely. trade. That was a per <laughs> what trade up on that one. Absolutely. So you found him, and what was the preparation like for this trip? So for my limited ring budget, I was able to get a horse that was um, just barely trained. So he needed a lot of work. He had a lot of bad habits and didn't know very much, but he was super friendly and just loved everybody, which was a really good quality. Mm -hmm. uh, really easier to train a horse when they want to please. So, uh, so I spent three years training him and then also uh, just a lot of research, just looking into had anyone done this crazy thing before, which there have been people, so I'm not the only crazy person like this. Uh, there's um, not very many people who travel by horse, but there are several every year who take some sort of month or two or six long ride uh, to go somewhere, you know, somewhere in the world, there's someone riding a very long distance on a horse. And there have been two or three people in the past, people or groups of people in the past who have done a 48 state ride of some kind. And so, uh, I looked at the two of them I could find information about, and then the third one I think completed it in the 90s maybe. I'm not really sure because I couldn't find good information about him, so I didn't really look at that one. But there, it has been done several times. Uh, everybody's got a different route and a different way of doing it though, and so I've researched not just those, but all kinds of uh, people who use horses for different things and took little bits and pieces from here and there and put it all together to learn what I needed to do. You're mapping out your route. You're trying, you need to figure out what 
what Apollo needs, what you need. There's food, there's water requirements, there's shelter requirements, there's rest requirements, there's probably different clothing requirements for you. I mean, like there's a lot. To, it's it's mind blowing to me when I'm, and I'm just starting to think about it, the list of things that you have to at least consider. So you kind of worked all of that out. Yeah, so it was, Maybe not all of it. <laughs> <laughs> you worked. You give me a lot of credit. Um, I, <laughs> well, you, you worked a lot of it. I mean, no matter, how, I would think no matter how much time you took and how much information you poured over, you'd get out there and be like, oh my gosh, I never even considered this. Oh, absolutely. Like uh, the yeah. third day on the road, my entire system of how the bags were packed on Apollo completely failed and we almost had a wreck and uh we almost had a, a series of wrecks where it was like oh god he's in the middle of panicking because these bags are falling off of him and he was jumping around and i couldn't get the bags off and so we almost got hit by a car while he's jumping around so i put him in a field uh i was leading him at the time and so i walked i got him while he's jumping around into a field thinking that would be safer from cars and it turns out the field was a mud hole and so then that was bad and then I got him to higher ground in the field and then he almost got tangled up in barbed wire and meanwhile he's still jumping and bucking and whatever and I'm trying to at the same time get all of these tangled up uh the bags were like sideways they're supposed to be like this over at the back of his saddle and everything tipped sideways and the whole saddle pulled sideways and so it's all hanging on the side uh and like tight where it shouldn't be and loose where it shouldn't be and just a big just a big wreck and it was like you know that was day three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and uh, the day before that i thought he broke my foot so um i was still walking Perfect. around on a possibly broken foot <laughs> so yeah how many times have a, you it was a little bit of a, you know, learning curve there in the beginning. Oh, well, no, I mean, really, no matter how much you plan something like this out, there were, there would definitely be things that you never even considered. There's no, I can't even imagine that not being possible. Having said that, you want to plan as much of it as you can. Right. Did right. you question what you were doing in that first week? <laughs> Every day. Like, <laughs> was there a point that you almost stopped and why didn't you? There have been many points where I've almost stopped. In the beginning, it was more stubbornness. Like, um, so the, the fourth day I wanted to quit and I called home in absolute hysterics because I was, it was raining and that bag that had caused everything to tip sideways, I hadn't been able to reattach. I needed some tools for that, which I couldn't get until day five. And so I had someone come and pick it up for me that I knew I was going to stay with that night. They just drove over and got my bag for me and took it ahead. So then um, in the meantime, I didn't have a tent and it was raining. And so the night I stayed in when I didn't have a tent, they let me stay in their tool shed uh, in this, like it was a big like farm, like tool shed, it was a big barn, but like mm -hmm. for tools. And so they let me stay in there and it turns out it was full of rats. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was ready to quit 
and I called home and I was like, I can't do this. There's rats here. I don't have a tent. It's raining outside. I can't just go sleep out there. I'll freeze. And it that also worked out. The uh the farmer who said I could stay in the shed, uh his wife came and knocked on the shed door and said, I don't know what my husband was thinking, but you come back with us and stay in the house. And so it worked out. I didn't have to sleep with rats. Uh, but like I was ready to quit then, except it wasn't really because it was only the fourth day. And there was no way I was quitting after three years of preparation on day four. It was just not even if I thought my foot was broken and there were rats and it was raining and my bags couldn't be attached and, and I didn't know what I was going to do about that yet and, 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 but it was stubbornness at that point. But then since then, any time that I've thought about quitting tends to be in a really inopportune time to quit. And so, it's not actually logistically possible. Like, what am I going to do? Just sit down on the side of the road and say, fuck it, I'm just done. <laughs> and so I'll sit down and I'll say, fuck it, I'm done. And then I'll cry and I'll, you know, eat a snack and um, think about what I've done with my life and pet Apollo and then um, decide that's not solving anything. And if I'm going to quit, I at least have to get where I'm going. For the day uh right. and make a plan there and by the time i get there i'm fine so then i keep going did you plan your route around because i know you're doing this to raise awareness for domestic violence so how much did that play a part in where you were stopping it's part of the decision how i plan where i'm going is a complicated so I have a podcast also, uh, Have Horse Will Travel, and the there's an entire episode that's like 45 minutes of me explaining how I plan where I'm going each day, <laughs> because it really is a very complex thing. Not now that yeah. I'm doing it, it's not really complex to me, but to explain it, it's, yeah. it's there's a lot to it. And most of it, like... 75% of it is just based on where I can find nice people who will let me stop with Apollo and stay on their property for the night. So um, it doesn't have to be a horse person. It just has to be a nice person. It has somewhere that a horse can stay, even if it's a fenced backyard, mm -hmm. and uh, somewhere that I can stay, either pitching my tent or sleeping on a couch or whatever. And so that's most of it. And then I do try to stop at shelters and crisis centers and domestic violence coalitions and whatever I can find. Uh, churches, a lot of times I'll stop and just talk to the congregation, whatever. Um, so that does play some role, but only if they're in the vicinity of where I can already find someone. Right. And I can't even imagine the logistics. So I, I'm glad you brought up the podcast because that's something we didn't talk about at the beginning. And sorry, I had mm -hmm. a sneezing fit here. <clears throat> but we didn't talk about that at the beginning. So you are doing that too. How do you do everything? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not asking. <laughs> like, Wi-Fi. <laughs> 
I'm weak. I like my sleep. <laughs> I, did too, I, mean, like, I, I need like nine hours. But, um, you're finding places to sleep and all that, but I'm thinking about like wireless internet and yeah. launching a podcast. I know it's possible, but do you have a, you must've had a good system by now. Yeah. Well, and I keep adding things because my system's good. And so initially all I could really handle was writing and finding places to stay. And that was really about it. I had an email newsletter that I dropped after the first three months or so because I just couldn't even do a monthly, you know, three paragraph newsletter. And it's definitely gotten easier over time as far as the things that I need to do daily like that. And then I add more things. So now I have, you know, daily posts on Facebook and daily posts on Instagram and and a uh, weekly post on my blog and a weekly podcast and, you know, and uh, on two YouTube channels. <laughs> That's so, right. Oh my gosh, um, I saw that. Yeah. And so it's, um, sometimes I overwhelm myself, sometimes being like probably most of the time, but uh, not everything has to necessarily be done like right on this schedule, you know, so I give myself some flexibility and I'm pretty efficient with everything. So, and I just like what I'm doing. Like I like uh, editing videos and I like doing podcasts and I like, you know, I love writing, writing and writing. And so, <laughs> um, you know, all the stuff that I write on my blog and my newsletter and my whatever, I like to write. And so that's not really a chore. Um, I love photography. So all the pictures I take and post everywhere, like, that's just fun. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's all these things just make sense to tie in another activity because, you know, also I do take the winters off. And so uh, I do have a lot of time in the winter. And who um, oh, did I mention I'm getting a master's degree too? <laughs> and so- I, I mean, I um, could only figure, I was gonna assume you were doing yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I take the winters off and so I have time, like I do write a book every winter. I write a series, uh, a collection of short stories from the previous year's ride. I do that in the winter. Uh, I take care of all my, uh, like, planning for the next year as much as possible. I take care of uh, a bunch of the podcasts. Yeah. Well, I launched the podcast in uh, March, and so I did all the planning for it w during winter break, and the as much of the recording I did in advance and the editing I did in advance. Yeah. Uh, so that one, when I'm writing, I don't have to deal with it so much. Yeah, I mean, doing a podcast, you know, we, podcasters have conversations with each other all the time, and that's a huge part of it is just planning it, preparing it, like bulk loading all of that stuff. And if I didn't look, if I didn't do another interview or look at my calendar, I'd be fine through the beginning of July, and it's April as we're recording, beginning of April. So like for three, you you can do a large volume ahead of time. So that's great. But still, I mean, 
if someone interviews me and they say, how did you do that? How do you do that? Whatever that is, right? And I'm looking at you like, how do you do all this? It's because <laughs> I think for me, it's always, well, this is what I chose and I love it. Mm-hmm. And just coming from that space, which is pretty much what you just said, you're yeah. like, this is what I wanted to do. And it's not hard because I like to write and I like to do this. And yeah, I mean, you chose it. and It's what you love. So you, you figure out how to do it. Right. And then exactly. it doesn't seem like as big of a deal to someone on the outside going like, are you crazy? What are you getting your master's in now? Uh, media management from Arkansas State. It's communications. Awesome. I don't know why they don't call it communications, but I guess it's like specialized communications. Well, look at you being specialized <laughs> in your communication. Take us back now to, because the, there's definitely the story before the story. So you were in college, you were going for, um, you, you know, you got your degree in riding horses. <laughs> and then you obviously met your husband at some point mm-hmm. before that relationship happened. Cause you already said that it was 10 years of a really, of a domestic, domestic abuse mm-hmm. relationship. So let's jump into that. Yeah. So we, so I moved from, I grew up in California and I moved to Colorado. Uh, to Fort Collins, Colorado, to go to school, and didn't know anybody there, Um, and wasn't really good at making friends. I'm, uh, you know, I'm good at, I don't know, casual socializing, but I'm not really good at, like, making deep friendships, you know, and so, um, Anyway, uh, I'm sure that I only mentioned that because I'm sure it contributed to my willingness to put up with his shit for so long uh, that we were in the same dorm for freshman freshman year. So that's where we met in the dorm. And so we dated all the way through uh, through college and then moved in together after college and uh effectively got married they have common law there uh common law marriage there and so we qualified for that and uh just called it you know called it good um and uh from that point from when i graduated until when i left was about uh eight years almost exactly so um four years of dating and eight years of marriage when did you when did this start i mean i know i know now you have hindsight because Mm -hmm. in in situations people are like you how did you not see that coming or how did you tolerate that and abuse is insidious it's not like you walk in a room and flip on the light switch and like boom there it is it sneaks in and lots of ways that you wake up one day and go how did we get to this place it's very insidious so how did that play out when did you recognize all of that it's such a complicated thing Mm -hmm. and i basically spent the last three years of my life trying to figure out a good way to explain it to all the people that i meet and i try to like my ride is not about telling my story but it's it has good examples for illustrating things that I need to talk about for awareness. So, you know, I don't mind talking about my story. 
but it's just it's so weird really like uh an abusive relationship is such a mindfuck really it's just it's hard to explain to anyone who's never been in that relationship and yet it's so important to explain so i'm gonna try but with yes. that preface um so basically we dated through college and he started off you know freshman year sophomore year well really all of college but especially at the very beginning it was he was like trying to be the perfect boyfriend i don't know that he was trying to be the perfect boyfriend to be like nice but because a lot of abusive people from what i've heard from other survivors have this sort of jekyll and hyde mm -hmm. uh, persona and so they know how to put on a show and you know for whatever reason um or a combination of reasons that um i was willing to you know he bought me flowers take me out to dinner do all these romantic things say just the right thing but then there was always this undercurrent that i was willing to overlook like uh my roommate and i would go to the uh the what do you call it the um the swing club we were uh we we did swing dancing west coast swing and so like not swingers we were swing i was dancing. not going to judge <laughs> you do you sure it's okay. real clear here we're not swingers <laughs> uh we were swing dancing and yeah, so yeah. we would go to dances and we'd go to dance practice mm -hmm. uh, and learn different steps and stuff and so she and i would go and you know he never acted like any sort of warning sign about being jealous of me dancing with other guys which is what i was working looking out for like i didn't want a jealous boyfriend but he was just sad that he, i didn't want to spend time with him you know and then he'd give me this guilt trip but only like really like it could even be cast as not a guilt trip because it was so weird how he would phrase things was i reading into it was it really a guilt trip you know and so there was that kind of thing um basically he wanted me to spend all my time with him and uh yeah there was other things like uh he would say something like it could even just be like some fact that he read in a book somewhere and then uh a month or a year or two years later he would say he never said that you know and maybe he forgot maybe i forgot maybe i misunderstood him and so i could always just put that aside 
but as time went on, especially once we moved in together, and then it was harder for me to break up with him because then I was, you know, living with him, uh, then it got worse and worse and worse from there. But even once we were living together, it took several years before it turned violent. Uh, everything up until there was physical abuse, there was still abusive stuff going on, but it wasn't physical abuse. And so I, like many women, didn't understand that a relationship could be abusive without being physically abusive. And so I thought, you know, oh, it's me. Oh, he's having a bad day. Oh, it's, you know, stress from work. You know, all these excuses you make. Because there's also this thing that goes on with abusive relationships that's called the cycle of violence. And so basically, uh, it's the violence, whether it's physical or emotional or uh, psychological or whatever kind it is, uh, you have this episode of violence, of abuse, and then there's what they call the honeymoon period, where then the abuser is so nice. And then he's that perfect gentleman that you remember from the early days when he was always like that. And then you think, oh, good, that was the last of that. He's back to normal. And then it starts to escalate again, where there's warning signs that it's going back to the violence. And then it goes back to, you know, from to the violence and then back to the honeymoon period. And so this this cycle is very psychologically difficult to deal with, to recognize exactly what is going on and not try to make excuses about it when, you know, whatever period of the cycle you're in, be like, oh, you know, he didn't mean to, look, he's nice now, uh, or this time it'll be different. You know, all these things we hear that as an outsider, you can look at and be like, yeah, honey, that's not going to change. But when you're <laughs> in it, it's so easy to believe that this time is going to be different. He said so, and he meant it this time. And it's so easy also to just feel like stupid <laughs> because you are, you know, buying it every time. Um, and maybe at some level, you know, it's a, it's not, but maybe you don't, but either way, it's once, even whether you recognize it or not, maybe he's feeling you, making you feel stupid, or maybe you sort of recognize it and you feel stupid for being in the cycle or whatever, but that, that negative thoughts and feelings about yourself make it even harder to get out of the cycle because it just feeds into like not feeling that you have the ability to leave because you don't feel good about yourself uh, that it's that you can't do it it's too hard um, and then there's other things too like um, financially there's financial abuse so it can just be financially difficult if not outright impossible to leave luckily i didn't have kids uh kids makes it even harder because if you um 
don't have the means to support yourself and the kids, unless you stay in an abusive relationship, then, you know, then it's 10 times harder um, to get out of it. So there's all sorts of reasons. Um, but it's definitely a slow progression over time before it gets to, you know, you don't date someone that hits you on the first date, generally. Uh, generally, no. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few people, but, you know, that's not usually how it works. It's not like, oh, thank God, I went on the date with this guy and he gave me a black eye. I'm going to stay with him forever, you know? <laughs> so... Uh, no, it is yeah. very insidious. And don't you think in these situations you feel like, oh, there's so much good stuff. Like there's this whole list of good stuff in all of oh, these yeah. memories. And also the like, am I going crazy? Is this yes. me? Right. So it's not even that you make, I mean, I think some people just think cut and dry. You're just making excuses for him and allowing it. You're enabling and allow. And that's not really how it works. It happens so slowly. It's so yeah. much more than that. And, and yeah, they also, this is also a situation where you've been closed off from a lot of the people. Like you said, he wanted you to spend all of your time with him. He didn't want you going out. They, that's another thing is that you've been removed so much from a circle of other people that you feel like you don't have support also. Yeah. When did it get physical and how did that change things? And sometimes it doesn't right away because you think that it was only that one thing, one time. Right. It, I would say, and you know, it's such a, I think I could remember, but yeah, <sighs> it's, it's just such a, I don't know, like it got physical probably a year or two after we moved in together, but it was like you say, it was one of those, oh, it was just uh, one time, you know, it just, that's, yeah. that was just, yeah, we're not even going to think about that anymore. I think but you I have think shock too, right? Well, You're like, too. yeah, okay. But, you know, all these good things that you fell in love in the first place, you kind of hang on to those, like, it's, you don't want to think about the bad because that's painful. You don't want more pain. You have enough pain from the guy hurting you in the first place. So you think about those good things and you hold on to those good things. And, or at least for me, that's how it was. It was yeah. like, yeah, it's, um, so initially, no, the violence didn't really change anything. Um, and later, I went through a lot of psychological abuse where it's also called gaslighting. It's yeah. basically uh, manipulation and brainwashing. Mm -hmm. And so um, like no one in the, in the social services or anything really uses the term brainwashing. But if you compare it to brainwashing techniques, it's like the same thing. So um, there was a lot of like, I never said that, or you said that, or, you know, like where he'd tell me something was, was black when it was white, or, you know, that something happened that didn't happen, or didn't happen that did happen, or, you know, that, and then I started being like, well, why is it, you know, must be my memory's bad because he's so insistent about it and he's so positive and I'm not really positive because 
you know, I'm a logical, sane person. And uh, as it turns out, but surprise, and then, <laughs> surprise. Uh, but he always be telling me, oh, you just, you know, you have mental problems and you just can't mm-hmm. remember and you're crazy and whatever. And I'm like, am I? Yeah. I don't remember these things he's saying, so I must be and he says I'm crazy and he loves me and so he must be just taking care of me because I'm crazy and so it put getting to that point took years years and years and years and uh at that point there was violence too but it was it was so all wrapped up into this convoluted insanity that it was so hard to really see clearly as strange as it sounds, even to me, who went through it, to look back and be like, how did you get into that, out of a situation? But it was, it was complicated. <laughs> and, uh, it is, it's, it's not black yeah. and white. It's not, and yeah. everybody has a slightly different perspective, but I think most people have very, a lot of commonalities in it. What yeah. was, what created the end for you? Cause uh, Obviously, it impacted you so much that now you're on a mission to raise awareness and make a difference. So yeah. it, it was monumental in your life. I mean, like it should be, but you're taking it to a different level in a direction to really reach out and support other people who are going through similar things. So when did it get, when was that last thing and why did, how did you get the guts? I mean, you said while writing Apollo, sometimes you'll sit down on the side of the road and be like, fuck it, I'm done. But on the flip side, at some point in that relationship, you had to be like, fuck it, I am done, you know, in a very different mentality. So bring me there. There were many factors that came together all at once. To oversimplify it, there was, by the last few years that I was still married to him, um, we had moved to literally one of the most remote towns that I've ever seen, even with all the rides I've done through rural America. Uh, and we were, there were no neighbors, like there was no one around and we had one vehicle and he had the keys and I was not allowed to go anywhere, or do anything without him. And so I was as isolated as a person can possibly get without being actually locked into you know, a basement or something. Um, and at that point, um, there was a day when he was not there. Uh, long story, we don't have time to go into, but anyway, I had a day to myself on the farm, like I wasn't going anywhere, but I was there by myself. and all of these things that he had been telling me i was able to see like that i couldn't do certain things because i wasn't capable or that i needed him for this or that or the other reason or i was crazy and i couldn't you know i couldn't get through certain points of the day without crying because i didn't realize he was making me cry by being an asshole and uh because of the way he was doing it was so insidious but he wasn't there and I got through the whole day without crying and I got through I got all of my chores done I got all of his chores done and I had time to myself 
even beyond that because it turned out like at least half of my day was spent like being picked on and being beaten and being you know like just miserable and that when it when he wasn't there it was like a revelation <laughs> and so um when he came back then at the end of the day i was like honey guess what um all these things that we both thought were wrong with me are not and now we can live like we used to live way back in the early days and so i thought i could change him and i thought uh -huh. i could change you know the situation and it turns out i was wrong and so at that point it took another half a year for me to actually leave but that was kind of the beginning mm -hmm. light bulb moment where it was like oh i can't show him what truth is and he's not going to change and i can't change this and this was the perfect opportunity if anything was going to get better for it to get better and it's not getting better and so then i was at that point starting to make a plan on how to leave although actually leaving was being so isolated and unable to get help from anybody there were no shelters out there the police were not responsive uh and so uh actually physically leaving was complicated <laughs> i keep using that term but it's uh it there was a lot involved with getting out safely because to try to leave and to fail is the most dangerous thing that an abuse victim can ever do because the times that you hear about someone getting murdered by their boyfriend or their spouse or whatever generally involves that they were trying to leave or that they had left and their abuser tracked them down and murdered them and so leaving is the most dangerous point and actually a reason why a lot of people stay even if they know it's bad it's more scary and more dangerous more scary reasonably so because it is more dangerous to attempt to leave than to stay and put up with what you know already so you made the decision and you had this six months to percolate on it you are literally like packing a backpack and running away in my mind is that kind of how there it was no packing there, there was, was no, no packing backpack. because he would have known that i was packing okay so you couldn't so even shove stuff in a bag and run i could only run and so i had what i had on me when i left that was what it. opportunity did you use use to do that i had to first of all get the keys and so i had to have you seen the movie um my big fat greek wedding yeah and there's that scene where the wife and another lady come up with a plan and they're gonna convince the husband that he needs to think it's his idea mm -hmm. and so they do this whole thing where he he comes up with this great idea and it's his idea but it's actually their idea yeah yeah so i had to basically do that to get the keys and be like oh it would make me feel so well and healthy and loved if i could just touch the keys and um 
so then I was allowed to hold on to the keys. Um, and then I had to wait until there was a moment where I could get in the truck and drive away without him being near enough to stop me either getting in the truck, turning it on and getting out the driveway, mm -hmm. um, which it's more, uh, there weren't very many opportunities for that. So, right. uh, and when I actually was physically in possession of the keys. So um, I just had to wait for that moment. Basically, I had to figure out what could happen like what all steps were involved in the what sounds like a simple process of getting in a car and driving away like what could physically happen that might uh like how far away did he have to be from me and from the truck yeah. and you know that because he could run faster than me and uh so that kind of thing you found your moment and you drove away i can't even imagine the level of adrenaline that was happening yeah. and fear yeah. and where did you go and then i know and this could be like a two-hour session easily you did get away you were able to get a divorce did you ever get any of your belongings back nope you walked away from everything you did nope. you even care i did put it in the court papers that mm -hmm. i wanted this this and this and this and this back mm no well, it wasn't there we don't know yeah, yeah. right yeah so there's you, no you literally lo lost everything except for the ring that you were wearing that you saw right and and whatever you know um whatever i had stored at my parents house when i moved away to college so like i had my wow. high school okay. yearbooks and <laughs> i mean you know, okay art from second grade <laughs> where did you run to and how hard was it to sleep at night like just to start functioning as a normal human being without abuse how was that it took well it's a process mm -hmm. i still have moments i mean it's been that was 2013 so seven years seven years um and I still have moments where something triggers me and I'm like, whoa, that took me back to a bad place. Yeah. But luckily it happens less now. Mm -hmm. I know there's still certain words and songs and certain things that really I just can't handle. Like yeah. I'll, probably no one around me can tell, but I just have to take a moment and like reset my brain to the present but as far as being functional maybe a month and a half that's awesome kind of functional like i got a job in a month and a half right and i was able to show up to work and be a functioning you know member of society but my job at that point was retail and trying to interact with people especially men was yeah such a challenge like i'm not sure anyone else could tell they probably just thought i was shy but which i kind of am but you know it was not shyness it was terror uh but i made myself do it because i needed a paycheck and i needed to get well and i knew that was important so you know i did, did it you run to your parents yeah yeah did they have any idea of what was going on they 
they knew something was wrong, but they've never really had, you know, any experiences like that. Mm -hmm. They haven't had anyone close to them who's been in an abusive relationship to recognize exactly what they were witnessing. Um, and so they knew that there was definitely something wrong, but they didn't know what to call it and they didn't know what to do about it. Right. So, but they were supportive when you left. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You pushed yourself through all of that. How long was it from when you left to when you actually bought Apollo? A year? Was it 2014? Uh, so it was 2000. Yeah. So uh, I left in March of 2013. And then I came up with the idea for the ride about a half a year later so that good fall. for you and that was actually in a um uh what do you call them um mental health thing like an appointment with a psychologist mm -hmm. uh she asked me what i wanted to do with my life now and i was like go on a travel by horse <laughs> <laughs> not weird like, at all. <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. But okay, cool. Okay, <laughs> that's awesome, though. I mean, you're going to therapy. You're doing the things that you're supposed to. Six months is great. You know, so, by this time, you're not crazy, right? And so at that point, I was like, I don't even know if that's like. Can anyone even do? Is that a stupid idea? That's probably a stupid. It kind of is a stupid idea. I'll admit that, but it's a, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But then I took a few months to kind of kick it around in my head. And then I started shopping for horses and I got a horse. I got Apollo then in January. So it was not even a full year since I'd left. That's and awesome. I spent three years preparing to start the ride. Yep. I've been on the road for three years. So holy cow, first of all, I'm, I think it's outstanding and good for you. I mean, that it's, that's outstanding. How much longer is the ride, do you think? And what's the plan? There's not a plan. That is, the plan is, there's no plan. <laughs> the plan, plan is, oh, it's slow. Um, yeah. well, no, I do have a map. Uh, I have a map. I keep pretty well updated on my website. Uh, basically, I still have the East Coast and the Southeast left to do. And I don't know really how long it's going to take me. Um, I mean, I know how many months of riding it should take, but there's a lot that can change as far as um, a lot of things, weather, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that affects um, when Everything. I can ride. Yeah. So um, I don't, I'll be done in 2021, theoretically. Okay. The original plan was to be done in 2020, but that is not going to happen. Right. Uh, I also thought when I started, it would be 10,000 miles and it's going to be like 12,000. So, yeah. you know, there you go. Um, but basically, I have a map of a big picture of like, I'm going here, but specifically towns, roads, people I'm staying with, uh, how, where I'm stopping each night. 
when I'm going to be where. That's awesome. And you, yeah. as long as you're cool with that, then yeah. yeah. Thank you, Meredith, so much for sharing your story and what you're doing, because it is absolutely outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to share it.